Father, thank you so much again that we have this story, and the story is so incredible. Help us to read it um, as if for the first time, and may our knowledge of who you are change our lives today. Amen. Okay, so we left off last time finishing the book of Genesis, which begins with a wonderful creation story, and the last few verses of Genesis is Joseph dead in a tomb. And the opening chapters of Exodus, of course, uh, you all know the story, um, but describe how the people, remember Jacob and his family came back out to Egypt, and eventually they became enslaved. A new king, who knew nothing about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. And of course, the story goes on, the Egyptians put slave drivers over them to crush their spirits with hard labor. Okay, and this went on for quite some time. And I want to just remember what we talked about a few weeks ago. Remember the prophecy to Abraham. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land. What's really interesting is uh, when you read the story here in the beginning of Exodus, um, read Stephen's speech that he gave just before he was stoned to death. It fills in a whole lot of details that we don't get, surprisingly, from the book of Exodus. In Acts 7, Stephen would say, when the time drew near for God to keep the promise he made to Abraham, and the promise here is this uh, four generations. Okay, when it was time to keep that promise, it was at this time that Moses was born. And uh, we won't go through the story here, of course, about the command to kill all the baby boys. But the point I want to just make for now is um, there is somewhat a relative absence of Satan in the Old Testament. He's there a little bit comes out now and then, of course, we saw him in the tree, but compared to the New Testament, where he's just talked about all the time, and I think we should acknowledge that, um, and and later on we'll talk about perhaps why Satan isn't highlighted so much in the Old Testament, but how do we view Satan's activity? Is Satan not aware here of the prophecy after four generations? And isn't it entirely possible that um, Satan, rather than just... um, you know, relaxing on the beach somewhere, enjoying lattes or whatever, that he is actively involved, is aware of this, and is it a coincidence that there is a command to kill all the baby boys right on time when it is time for God to act and to bring his people um, out of captivity? Was it a coincidence that when the prophecy of Daniel was fulfilled, that right on time there was a decree to kill all the baby boys just when Jesus Uh, was born. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it reflects uh, the activity of an enemy behind the scenes. Well, without going through that part of the story, again, uh, reading the account now from Acts, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to find out how his fellow Israelites were being treated. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his help and took revenge on the Egyptians, uh, on the Egyptian by killing him. Okay, was this God's method of um, trying to get his people out of Egypt? Well, as you know, he had to flee. Moses heard that um, the Pharaoh knew what had happened. He fled from Egypt, went to live in the land of Midian. And there he had two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses at the burning bush. Now, this is an 80-year-old man, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian. And that's when he's 80 has this encounter at the burning bush. Uh, Maybe just a little detail, whether this is significant or not, but when we read the account here in Exodus, 
of the burning bush, one day while Moses was taking care of the sheep and goats of his father-in-law Jethro, uh, he had the encounter at the burning bush. But um, now an 80-year-old man, you're, you're coming to the end of your life, and what is your occupation? You're not just taking care of sheep and goats, but the sheep and goats of your father-in-law. We think of great, mighty Moses, and at the age of 80 here, he's taking care of his father-in-law's cattle. Well, not surprising then, what does that say? What do you think Moses learned? Did Moses need to learn something during those 40 years? And what do you think you learn taking care of sheep and goats for 40 years? What do you think he learned? Well, uh, what's the one, is there one character description of Moses in the Bible? Moses was what? They actually have it in words. He was what? He was, well, he stuttered too, but I don't know if that's, that was his character. But uh, yeah, he was uh, humble. In fact, we read this, um, uh, it comes out here when God set, talks to him at the burning bush. He said, now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? Um, the Good News Bible says, uh, translates this, uh, I'm a nobody. Okay, is it possible that this is exactly the attitude that God was looking for? Was he looking for a proud person or was he looking for someone who was humble? And here we have the words, Numbers 12, 3. Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on earth. Um, who wrote the book of Numbers? Moses. Imagine writing down, um, I'm the most humble guy that is out there. Um, now, it's interesting here in my Bible, these are in parentheses. It may be that this was added later. Um, you know, there are parts to the book of Moses. Uh, you know, the book of Deuteronomy ends with a description of Moses' death. Certainly, Moses didn't, you know, come back and, and write that. Someone filled in the, the end of the passage. Um, but the point here is, what does it mean? He was a very humble man. And I think Moses could have written this without it being a proud action because humility was not, um, it was not something that was really valued or esteemed at that time. He was a very humble man. And this is really what I want to talk about this morning. What is humility and uh, why did God cho choose the most humble person? <clears throat> Just a few verses on humility and then we'll talk about uh, what this really means. In Psalm 138, even though the Lord is high above, he sees humble people close up. And he recognizes arrogant people from a distance. Kind of interesting. Sees the humble people close up. In Isaiah 57, the high and lofty one lives forever and his name is holy. This is what he says. I live in a high and holy place, but I am with those who are crushed and humble. I will renew the spirit of those who are humble and the courage of those who are crushed. Okay, and one more, just a few chapters later on in Isaiah. The Lord says, and we like to quote the first part of this, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house then could you build for me? What kind of place for me to live in? I myself created the whole universe, but notice I am pleased with those who are humble and repentant and who fear me and obey me and, and fear uh, really means reverence and respect. It doesn't mean God is looking for people that are scared to death of him. It's to reverence and uh, respect God. Okay, so uh, it's significant here that the one who is so humble had this kind of relationship 
with God. Described in Exodus 33, the Lord would speak with Moses face to face, just as someone speaks with a friend. That the one who is so humble has a face-to-face -face relationship with God. Remember, eternal life is to know God, which is to be in this very special, uh, intimate relationship with God. And Moses had that. And I think the, the quality of humility, which we need to expand on here, is uh, really at the core of that. Well, you're familiar with Jesus' words here, his first real sermon. Remember how disappointed the people were with his first sermon. And he would say, happy are those who are humble. They will receive what God has promised. What does that mean? Why does God value um, humility so much? Well, here's, here's the, the basic point that I want to make, because I understand that biblical humility is ultimately where the good of others is placed over that of the individual. It's where we are other-centered rather than being self-centered. Okay, And the opposite of that are the attempts to better oneself at the expense of others. And that can be done through a variety of means. Um, but of course, the opposite of humility is pride, selfishness. I think why this is so important is what was the original sin, uh, which we talked about so much? What did Lucifer do? And ultimately, what he did was he began self-seeking. Uh, he began seeking self rather than seeking God. Pride, selfishness. Remember what happened at the tree? We talked about the lies about God, but remember the last one from Satan to Eve was, hey, if you eat this tr uh, fruit, you will be more elevated. You'll be like God. It created a selfish desire and ultimately turned her mind away from God and worship of God to self. What can I do to build myself up? Okay, that is the opposite of humility, which is where we are focused on others and on God and not where the whole universe revolves around ourselves. Okay, the ultimate example of this, which we'll come back and read the story, but uh, Moses was so other-centered in his humility that when it seemed like maybe God might even destroy the rebellious people in the wilderness, um, that he would say this to God. Please forgive their sin, but if you won't, then remove my name from the book in which you have written the names of your people. I mean, this is really, it's a foreshadowing of the cross where Jesus would surrender all out of love for others and say, Father, forgive them. Okay, this is really the, the, this is the classic example, I think, of Moses' humility. He was completely other-centered. And I think it's hard for us to identify what would it, what it feel like to be other-centered. Okay, we're, I think a major part of the sin problem is that we are all in, infected with this entirely self-centered focus. And so some examples. I've never actually watched this TV show, so maybe I shouldn't uh, talk about it. I'm told from others that Dr. House here is a good example of perhaps an arrogant, um, condescending um, physician. And it is quite remarkable that um, students, as they become interns and residents and attending physicians, that some become um, very humble, uh, very service-oriented, and that really comes across. Others uh, really become quite arrogant and proud. It is quite easy to go down two different roads. You know, as a physician, you get praise a lot. Uh, running to patients uh, at uh, Costco or whatever. Oh, this is my doctor. And you get congratulated. You get called by your title. Uh, it's very easy to uh, just to relish that. Okay? But that is, that is uh, really the opposite 
of what the Bible is describing as humility. And I, I brought this picture up here just because to remind me, um, when I was a student, I think this was long enough ago, about 20 years ago, that um, there was a physician I worked with, not at this hospital, but somewhere else, but he trained at Johns Hopkins. This is a picture of Johns Hopkins. And every day he would just talk about himself. He trained at Johns Hopkins, the great things he had done. And all the students knew, well, if you want a good grade, all you have to do is just feed his ego and uh, he'll love you. Okay, and uh, you know, it was, it was a long month dealing with this uh, kind of a, an attitude. It was the, really the opposite. Even the interactions with patients, caring for patients, it really was to, uh, to feed self. And eventually that really uh, results in a change in a person. Um, I had an experience uh, about seven or eight years ago. Uh, we were at a party and someone was describing that they had carpal tunnel syndrome. And they knew that I was a neurologist and so they asked me around a table and I started talking for just a few sentences about carpal tunnel syndrome. And someone else who was there, um, a layperson, had heard something about carpal tunnel syndrome and cut me off and disagreed and had a strong opinion about something about carpal tunnel syndrome and expanded on it for a long period of time. And you know, I'm just sitting there. And my initial response, I think if we are really focused on a need for praise from others to boost up self, well, we want to defend self at that moment. And I want to say, hey, I'm a neurologist. I completed a fellowship training in the area of carpal tunnel syndrome. I've seen a thousand <laughs> patients with carpal tunnel. You know, you want to get in there and, uh, and act in that way. Humility doesn't mean that we just get beat up by people, though. We'll talk about Jesus. It's not weakness, okay? But we don't act in ways that are about defending self. I think the worst of all is spiritual pride. Um, I know some individuals who share a lot of common beliefs with me about important theological matters, but they're very proud and condescending towards people who don't see things the same way. And that has an effect, uh, boy, we talk about an ultimate uh, vaccine. We want a vaccine against swine flu. If you want to vaccinate people against God, come and tell them true words, but then uh, by your actions reveal something entirely different. So. The Bible describes to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and we think of this experience as power-related. Boy, we're going to you know, levitate or do miracles or something, but here's what it is to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and self-control. Of course, the individual, our best example of someone filled with the Spirit is Jesus. And does, did Jesus appear, I mean, uh, proud as he went around? I mean, it's God in human form, but he was really um, humility personified, I would say. And when we're filled with the Spirit, uh, we will be like Jesus in that aspect. So just some incredible quotes on this from T.S. Eliot, who said, Do not let me hear of the wisdom of old men, but rather of their folly. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. And if we tie this one with the quote of C.S. Lewis, I think we can see perhaps why humility is endless. Here's C.S. Lewis. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Because okay, if you are proud, 
what, you are the center of the universe, everyone else you are judging and condemning, and you really cannot appreciate um, God or be in a relationship with God. That's why it's so important. So it's not surprising then that God picks a humble man because he would give this humble man some incredible power. God's promise to Moses here, you will be like God, telling him what to say. And then later, the Lord said, I am going to make you like God to the king. And your brother Aaron will speak to him as your prophet. Okay, how many of us could handle God saying that to us? I'm going to make you like God at Loma Linda. How would you respond to that? Wouldn't you uh, uh, be hard not to be filled with pride? God said that to you. Okay, Moses didn't take it that way. Now, here's the other point. Okay, we can admire Moses for his humility and the fact that that is absolutely necessary for us in our life and our relationship with God. Here's what I think is uh, perhaps even more wonderful. A quote here about God. You are love. You are wisdom. You are humility. Now, is God humble? Um, we don't tend to think of God in terms of humility. There aren't many songs we sing in church about God's humility. We sing about his power a lot. Is God humble? Here's the prophecy. This was a messianic prophecy all the way back here, books of Moses, about the coming Messiah. And Moses said, In the land you are about to occupy, people followed the advice of those who practiced divination and looked for omens, but the Lord your God does not allow you to do this. Instead, he will send you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among your own people, and you are to obey him. On the day that you were gathered at Mount Sinai, you begged not to hear the Lord speak again or to see his fiery presence anymore because you were afraid you would die. So the Lord said to me, they've made a wise request. I will send them a prophet like you from among their own people. I will tell him what to say and he will tell the people everything I command. So the coming Messiah would be like Moses. Okay, in what way would the coming Messiah be like Moses? I think the ultimate description of Moses is he was humble. And Jesus was humble. We can quote Jesus' own words, like Moses, I am meek and humble of heart. And I think what we have to tie with this, Jesus' self-description of himself, that he is meek and humble. Remember, he would say towards the end of his life, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, if Jesus was meek and humble, uh, the Father also is meek and humble. Yes, he's all-powerful. It doesn't detract from the power, but it, it points back to the character of God as ultimately other-centered. This is such a wonderful passage. I know we've read it before, but um, it's, it so highlights this uh, humility of God in Philippians 2. The attitude you should have is the one that Christ had. He always had the nature of God, but he did not think that by force he should try to remain equal with God. Instead of this, of his own free will, he gave up all he had and took the nature of a servant. He became like a human being and appeared in human likeness. He was humble and walked the path of obedience all the way to death, his death on the cross. And for this reason, God raised him to the highest place, the one who's so humble, the highest place above and gave him the name that is greater than any other name. Uh, and the interaction between the, the Trinity here is, is, I think, really interesting. We have Jesus, who didn't walk around and say, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, I'm here, I'm God. He kept saying, I've come to tell you about the Father. Okay, and here we have the Father saying about the Son, I'm giving him a name that is greater than any other name. And what does the Holy Spirit do? 
Holy Spirit tells us the truth about God as revealed by Jesus. So the, the, the Trinity seemed to reflect this, this other-centered love um, among themselves. They all seemed to be deflecting uh, praise to the other. And a wonderful quote on this. What is the Father really like? We are accustomed to thinking of the Father in terms of power. Yes, the Father is omnipotent, but the Father's heart is meek and humble, like the Savior's. It is meek, for in him there is nothing brusque or abrupt, no violence, no fury, but only kindliness and goodness and affection. His heart is also humble. He attaches no importance to display or appearances. He prefers the poor means and is united to the voluntary abasement of his son. Notice, united to that, who took on our nature and suffering. We must learn to see the Father in this light. And I think we do need to learn to see the Father uh, more in that light. So the, the familiar words then, God is love. God is love personified. Well, what happens if we read the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and we substitute God for love? Love is not arrogant or rude. Well, we can say God is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on having its own way. Does God insist on having its own way? I mean, there's the horrible mess we see on planet Earth is evidence that God does not insist on having his own way. It's our freedom to rebel that has resulted in this mess. Love is not self-seeking. Okay, God at his heart is not self-seeking. I mean, his death on the cross is proof of that. Love is not proud. Okay, God is not proud. Now, I think what, what might be raised as an objection to this is, well, doesn't God ask us to worship him? How can you be humble and ask someone to uh, worship you? Well, what is important about worship? I mean, it's our relationship, it's our intimacy with God, but ultimately the way we are healed and transformed is through our worship relationship with God. And this is so biblical, but th this quote so well makes the point um, that I'll just quote this from uh, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. A person will worship something, have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will out. Now notice, that which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Okay, we become like the God we love, worship, and admire. So as, as far as our picture of God is closer to the reality, okay, which includes more than power, but love and humility and all of those other wonderful things, we become like the God we worship. Now, a couple things. What humility is not? Okay, humility does not mean weakness. And I want to give you one example in the life of Jesus that some might interpret as weakness. Okay, this is in the upper room. And the disciples, if we read the Luke account, they're squabbling about who's going to be first in the kingdom. And uh, so Jesus and his disciples were at supper. The devil had already put into the heart of Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot, the thoughts of betraying Jesus. And now notice, Jesus knew that the Father had given him complete power. I mean, he's in recognition of complete and absolute power. He knew that he had come from God and was going to God. And if we don't finish the verse, you might think, well, the disciples are arguing about who's going to be first. Judas has betrayed Jesus. I mean, this is a time for power, as we define power. Okay? She bears in the room, lightning from heaven. I mean, some, some display like that. That's power. 
Okay, what did Jesus do with the recognition of all that power? It's really unbelievable. So, no skipping verses. So, he rose from the table, took off his outer garment, and tied a towel around his waist, and he washed the disciples' dirty feet. Okay, is that weakness? Um, and it depends on our point of view. But one way to see this would be, I mean, this is really, what is the ultimate power? Is it not love? service revealed to others. I think Jesus was trying to convert his disciples at this point, even Judas. I mean, didn't he wash the feet of Judas? Okay, this is real power. The knowledge of having all that power and using it to serve. Um, that's real power. And I think of people like Gandhi. Um, he uses the word nonviolence, but I think it's describing the same uh, concept that we're talking about here. Gandhi would say nonviolence does not mean meek submission to the will of the evildoer, but it means pitting of one's whole soul against the will of the tyrant. Working under this law of our being, it is possible for a single individual to defy the whole might of an unjust empire, to save his honor, his religion, his soul, and notice, and lay the foundation for that empire's fall or its regeneration. I mean, what happened? Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. He went out and died. It was the ruin of Judas. He hardened his heart at that moment. Okay, we compare Peter. What happened to Peter? I mean, he was one to God by this incredible revelation of love. Okay, so acting in this way, it is, I don't know if aggressive is the right way, but it is a response to injustice that is active, okay, that has the power to heal uh, or to harden. Nonviolence is like radium in its action. An infinitesimal quantity of it embedded in a malignant growth acts continuously, silently, and ceaselessly till it has transformed the whole mass of diseased tissue into a healthy one. Similarly, even a little of true nonviolence acts in a silent, subtle, unseen way and leavens the whole society. I mean, that's describing something very powerful, transforming. Okay, this is one of the best quotes of all. What power? What do we think of power? This is how I'd like to describe power. Omnipotence is not to be understood as the power of unlimited coercion, but as the power of infinite persuasion, the invincible power of self-negating, self-sacrificial love. Okay, and um, so the, the life of Jesus reveals this so clearly to us. The work of the Holy Spirit is to bring this to our minds in a more and more powerful way uh, that we come to see God uh, in this incredible way. So that's the first point. It's not weakness. The second point is humility doesn't mean that we have a low opinion of ourselves. Oh, we're worthless. Okay, that's not uh, humility. What happens is if we are not humble, if we're proud, by nature we look down on, we judge and condemn other people. Uh, we look at people and see the speck in their eye and we're completely blind to the beam in our own eye. What happens if humility becomes a part of us, is that we become very aware of the beam in our own eye. Okay, and then we look to help our brother who has the speck, or sometimes a beam, um, in, in his own eye. Okay, but it is not to judge and condemn others. And here's maybe another way of thinking about it. Um, again, I mentioned we, we just by nature tend to place ourselves at the center of the universe. Everything else revolves around us, including God. Okay, the, the transforming thing I think that happens when we become other-centered is God becomes the center of everything. Okay, and we revolve around God along with everyone else. And so love for God is supreme. 
And we, instead of looking to others for praise to build up self, instead of looking for others to fulfill all of our needs, um, all of our needs are fulfilled by God and we define ourselves by God's love for us, not by the opinion that other people have of us. Okay, and in that way, something begins to happen. And the, the thing that we associate, I think most often in terms of an action with humility is service. We begin to serve others rather than to condemn them and judge them. So in 1 Peter, Peter would say, do your work not from your pay, but from a real desire to serve. And notice, all of you must put on the apron of humility. Service and humility go hand in hand to serve one another. For the scripture says, God resists the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Okay, humility involves action in the world that is um, uh, doing good for others. Here's a good quote from a physician, Albert Schweitzer, who would say, I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I do know, the only ones among you who will be really happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. Uh, so much a part of humility, because if we don't live in that way, we live our whole lives hoping that others will somehow uh, fulfill all of our needs um, rather than God. If God fulfills all of our needs, we become like God and we go out and serve in the world. A last verse on this. What's your picture of heaven? Here's an incredible par parable describing our first meal in heaven. Luke 12, 37. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready when he comes. Now, what I'm about to tell you is true. The master, God, will then dress himself so he can serve them. He will have them take their places at the table and he will come and wait on them. Now, can you imagine we arrive in heaven and God is your waiter um, for the first meal? Well, it certainly wouldn't be, seem to be beneath God to do that. Um, that, that he would still, I mean, the, the, the character of God revealed by Jesus, this was not just a one moment in time, one little window into what God is like. I mean, this is what God is like. We arrive in heaven and hear this description of God still serving, still um, other-centered. Well, maybe we can just make uh, one last point here um, at the burning bush. And then next time in, in two weeks, we'll talk about the plagues. Kind of hard to talk about the plagues now after having said all that. But let's just talk about Moses at the burning bush. And it was the angel of God that appeared to him in flames. And this theme has come up several times. We've talked about Hagar, who saw the angel of God. But notice as we read on in the description, okay, Moses said, what's going on here? I can't believe this. Amazing. Why doesn't the bush burn up? And then God saw that he stopped to look. God called to him from out of the bush. What we just read, it's the angel of the Lord. Now God is the one talking. Moses, Moses. Okay, the angel of the Lord is God. And so many examples of that. Uh, Moses replied, when I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors sent me to you, they will ask me, what's his name? So what can I tell them? And God said, I am who I am. You must tell them the one who is called I am has sent me to you. Now that's an interesting title, the I am. Okay, because, of course, if we skip to the New Testament, many times Jesus used this same title for himself. Um, in John 8, when he had this uh, argument with the Pharisees, he said, you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am who I am. When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am who I am, using the same title. Okay, And um, 
He said, I'm telling you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. And as evidence that his audience really understood what he was saying, the claim he was making, they picked up stones to throw at him, and Jesus hid himself. They knew this was blasphemy in their mind. He's claiming to be the same God who spoke to Moses at the burning bush, uh, the I am. Okay, it's again, the, the God of the Old Testament is the, the Son of God who became a human in Jesus Christ. And maybe one other I am passage uh, we don't think of, but when the, the guards are coming out to, to bring Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane, um, Judas went to the garden, taking with him a group of Roman soldiers and some temple guards. And they were armed and carried lanterns and torches. And Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him. And notice what he did. He stepped forward. He asked them, who is it you're looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. And he said, I am he. Now, I'm not sure if this shows up. This is in italics. If you have a King James, you can see that the he is italicized, which means that word is added. Okay, when the guards were coming to Jesus, he literally said to them, I am. Okay, and notice what happened. Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they moved back and fell to the ground. I mean, right there before he went to the cross, he literally declared himself to be God in human form, and they collapsed to the ground. Okay, so the I am runs all the way through um, the Bible. And I read last time that the one who went with them in the wilderness that the rock was Christ himself, from 1 Corinthians 10. Okay, so God's condescension. This, this fits in well here with our subject of humility. This is how we think of God, typically, and rightly so. Um, God is a powerful one. Here in Jeremiah 23, he is all-powerful. Where God would save himself, I am a God who is everywhere, and not in one place only. No one can hide where I cannot see them. Do you not know that I am everywhere in heaven and on earth? Okay, now that's our picture of God, which is true. Okay, but do we also incorporate, I mean, just from the stories, that God would condescend to allow himself to be referred to as the angel of the Lord in the story of Hagar, who then said, I've seen God, and Jacob, who wrestled in the night with the angel of the Lord, who was God, and Moses, who saw the angel of the Lord at the burning bush, but it was God. And later on, we'll talk about Gideon. Okay, but God doesn't condescend merely to be described as an angel. Of course, he was known as the man of Nazareth. And more than that, he didn't grow up in just any old town, but the reputation of Nazareth, can any good come from Nazareth? And that's where um, Jesus grew up. And ultimately, nothing, if we want to say that. Dead in a tomb. Okay, so uh, God's condescension to meet us would ultimately lead to three days dead in a tomb. Uh, quite remarkable and I think the greatest story of humility, really, that there is. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we ask that um, this, this picture of you is revealed through the Bible that comes out so clearly in the life and death of Jesus. May that become a part of us. May that become our reality. May we define who we are, not so much by um, those around us, but uh, may we define who we are by the great love that we see that you have for each one of us. Amen.